very welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney, I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator myself, and I'm particularly interested in practices of teaching and in mathematics education. You can listen to or download hundreds of previous Inside Education podcasts by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter using the handle at InsideEd, and you can email me at InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. Now, I know I've been a little bit erratic lately in dropping podcasts. They haven't been coming out on Wednesday as usual, but one of the reasons for that is that I have been doing a lot of interviews and I have lots of very interesting, I think, podcasts coming up in the next couple of weeks that I think you'll find very interesting. So I'll still aim for Wednesday, but for various reasons, it's not always working out at the moment, but I'm still going to try and get out one podcast every week. This week on the programme, I bring you an interview with an expert in globalisation, technology and education reform. Originally from China, Professor Yang Zhao began his professional life as an English teacher in China before moving to the United States for postgraduate study. Today, he is a Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas. He has previously held professorial appointments at the University of Oregon and at Michigan State University. He writes a blog on his website, zhaolearning.com. He has been to Ireland on several occasions, including in 2014 when he addressed the annual conference of the Irish Primary Principals Network, and he name-checks some Irish colleagues, Paul Conway and Looney, in the course of our conversation. You will like this week's podcast if you're interested in how globalisation will impact on the work of schools, on the purposes of education, and on how technology is influencing the work of teaching. You'll also like this week's programme if you're interested in the idea of entrepreneurship in education. And Professor Zhao discusses his possibly controversial views on the PISA test scores. He has some memorable lines in the podcast, such as, to compete with a machine, a person must avoid becoming one. In a recent blog post, Yang Zhao wrote about the COVID-19 pandemic and observed that the majority of governments and education leaders are managing the crisis instead of taking advantage of the opportunities within the crisis. Given that statement, I began by asking him what he sees as the opportunities within the current COVID-19 crisis that we're facing. Well, I think you know, there are many different opportunities. First of all, let's think about this. Uh, the first great opportunity is that uh, there are no schools. Because uh, education has always been bounded by schooling. You know, we can imagine education without schooling. Schools have followed a traditional grammar of schooling. You know, we have the curriculum, we have the subjects, we have isolated classroom, we have uh, subjects departments, we have one teacher dealing with a group of students, uh, and uh, we have grades, we have all those traditional grammar. So whenever you talk about education change, school leaders or school educators often think about, well, we cannot do this because we have timetable. We cannot do this because we have national curriculum. We cannot do this because of testing. Now, when all of those are gone, can we reimagine? So, you know, the crisis mindset to say, okay, can we replicate this in online where there are no schools? So now when you have the freedom, can we stop and rethink? So it's a great opportunity 
to rethink, for example, do we have to teach as much? Do we have to teach the subjects? And do we have to do this? You know, look at the subjects. Do we really have to do everything we're supposed to do? Do we have to deliver upstream from 8 o'clock to 8.45 and then 10 minutes break? Do we have to have one teacher teaching the same group of children, 25 or 30 of the same age? Do we have to use textbooks? I think this is a time, a great moment to think. It's a great opportunity. And there are many other opportunities. For example, the opportunity of children actually in their real world experience, the common experience, the pandemic. Everybody has some similar experience. We can talk about that. You, you, it's of course, in Ireland, it's a relatively smaller country. It's easy. It's relatively easier to have common experiences. But imagine large countries. How do you think about this? But even for Ireland, when we talk about teach global understanding, global empathy, global competency, this is a rare opportunity for children to actually have something in common. Uh, it's tragedy, you know, but you know, don't get me wrong, but it is good to reflect on this. This is no different than World War I, World War II. People have different, you know, they have the common experience, but they have different psychological and cultural reactions. Okay, and I want to come back to some of what you said there, especially about global competence in a moment. But if we just stick with the idea of the opportunities that the current crisis presents, and you've said, you know, there's no subjects and so on, and that you can, there's no structure and that these things, so we can reimagine these things. But at the end of the day, whatever we do has to be done at scale. So how do you build consensus around innovation? to make it implementable so that all students have equal opportunities within the education system? Well, I'm not sure that's the right approach. I don't think we can build consensus across such diverse set of locations, cultures, societies, economies, you know, OECD or PISA has trying to build one. I think that's the wrong approach. It's, it's, that's not going to... It's not a building consensus because we cannot agree upon what innovation is best for us. So we cannot agree. What I am interested in is more a free competition. You know, get people together. Like you, Sean, you know, you started innovation. You didn't convince anybody. You convinced yourself. You started it. If people like your show, like what you're talking about, they come to you. And you start. I, I, I believe in the individual start a movement and trying different things. I don't believe in really convincing others to do something. I, I, I believe in doing something. If other people believe it's a good idea, they share the idea, they will come. That, that's, that's what I believe. If they don't, you try something different. So, so I don't think you can. I actually, I'm, I'm quite um, against the idea of trying to convince a system to move or build a consensus. I think the consensus is there, the, the, the consensus for change. But there's no consensus for what change can be, what change should be taking place. So where then, in your view, are the opportunities for change to happen at the present time? In other words, is it individual schools, is it individual teachers, or is it a higher level of policymakers? Or where can the innovation in response to the current lack of structure emerge from? Well, I think it happens at all levels. It's uh, change happens when there are people who are winning and who have the courage to change. 
you will see changes at even student level. You will see changes at family level, at teacher level, at uh, school level, at system level. I think that that's what's going to happen. Change and innovation emerges. And whether they catch on or they stay on, that's a different question. That has to do every different ecosystem cultivates different kind of innovations. So, so my work and I'm sure your work is trying to stimulate that to say, we have opportunity to change. We can change and let's do something about that. Let's not wait for somebody to make the change uh, for us. Uh, let's not make, wait, wait for others to change so we can change. I don't think our change should be dependent upon other people's change. We are, everybody should have this uh, startup mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset. And I've been advocating in my own you know, uh, writings is that uh, you know, we have to be the owners of the responsibility for change. But there's something different this time. You know, I would say traditionally in school, school changes, school innovation, were mostly happening because teachers and school leaders have a moral, moral obligation to think our children deserve better. Our children deserve better. It's not forced to change. They did not, you know, there was, they're not losing a job. They're, you know, there's no external force to say you got to change, you know. But this time, there are some forced changes. For example, we've been convincing people to say technology might bring different of teaching, but we spend a lot of money trying to convince teachers, convince everybody for I know, decades. It hasn't happened, but overnight it happened. So that's a forced change. Okay, that, that's, you know, we talk about distributed learning. Can you imagine, say, okay, during school year, we send all children home to do research about the home and bring them back. It, it would never happen, but now I said it has happened. So I think, you know, this time is some, there's something different ab about this. And also we have forced changes, for example, we've been advocating for policymakers. Equity is an important thing. We should give every child access to high-speed internet, to digital devices, and didn't. But now, since you're going to operate online, you know, school districts, schools have to provide children those devices. Suddenly, you know, charitable organizations, businesses come together, let's buy those kids, those necessities. You will be convinced people like laptop or smart device should be like a pencil. I wrote a book called The Digital Pencil. Actually, it was one of your professors from Ireland, Paul Conway. And uh, he's, uh, he used to be at Cork. I think now he's at uh, Nimrod. You know? We used, wrote a book called you know, The Digital Pencil. You know? You know, we never evaluate if pencil affects student learning, but we evaluate technology, computers. You know, why shouldn't it be a digital pencil? You know, so you live together. You know, but now that suddenly, at least forcing many people to think, well, that's a necessity, not a you know, luxury you can judge about. If you were in a position to intervene in any education system you wish, and you could implement some innovation that was pretty much guaranteed to succeed, what level would you go in at and what innovation would you introduce? Well, I like to create options that has direct impact on children. So youth movement, if I were doing something, if I were to say, for example, let's take Ireland, for example, you're not that big, you know, you, you, as a country, if I were running Ireland, I probably would run an Irish National Youth Academy to completely run, uh, you know, to, to run, you know, I'm actually doing a big project called HIP, Human Interdependence Project. What if we run this, you know, youth start together, just, they don't go, they just go join this one movement. And they began to conduct in real research, 
come up with a real problem uh, solutions to the problem of human interdependency. Why don't we get along? And why we our uniqueness, our diversity is the strength of humanity. And then I would just open to anybody. Teachers want to join, students want to join. You know, they will join as alternative to, to our traditional school. Build options, building something that children can drop in instead of dropping out. You know, you know, catch those students who are not being served by the existing system. Don't get me wrong, I don't want, I'm not ready to abolish everything in the existing system. I really treasure human diversity. You have different teachers, different students with sick, different needs. There are people, I would say 20 to 30%, probably higher, who are not being served by the existing system. And what age group were you thinking of for that youth academy? What would be the lowest age or the youngest age that they could join? Well, I would, I would start with the uh, uh, kindergarten, five-year-olds. They can sing songs together. They can do drawings together. They can, they can describe their psyche. They can, make, uh, they can read uh, storybooks to each other. And they can choose, you know, you know, once you have a mass, like think about an Irish one, children treat stories, they can write letters to each other, they can collaboratively sewing together, you know, all those things. Because what, what you find is that when you have small schools, a big problem is this. If a school is too small, it's very hard to find like-minded people. So you, you, you have to expand that. So then you have children, with, that's what we always think that they belong to special education, they have some problem. No, they are not. You know, they are not the normal, but their norm may be aligned with other people. You've written a lot about globalization. How do you understand that term or how do you define it? I think globalization, you know, there are many ways to think about globalization. In my mind is that um, it's what I call the death of distance the death of distance. Physical distance is dead in, in many ways in terms of information, terms of money, even in terms of people. You know, I know flights, you know, from Ireland, Dublin to US may still take a long time, but it's still much shorter. Think about, you know, from traveling from Dublin to Cork 300 years ago, it's probably take as much long as you take a flight to New York, right? It's a, probably, you know, it's that. But then with distance doesn't matter human beings began to affect each other a lot more, a lot more. You know, that, that is the, you know, we, our economies interconnected, our cultures interconnected, our politics, politics interconnected. Look at the spread of the virus. It's a beautiful example of human faith. But then the issue is this. So I have two aspects. The geographical distance is dead. Religious di distance is still alive. Linguistics distance is still alive. Cultural distance is still alive. Psychological distance is alive. Political distance is alive. So all those distances conflict with the, the death of distance in physicality. So what happens, that's why we have more human conflicts. Human conflicts happens at local level now. You know, in, in a community, you have a local conflicts because you have immigrants. Look at Brexit, what's happening. Look at, you know, the French, you know, the, the yellow hats or the yellow jackets and all those things. So, so that's why, you know, it's incumbent on us to think of a global competency. But global competency, most people mistake it as dealing with other people, dealing with other countries. They, they call it cross-cultural competency. It's cross-national. Global competency happens at local level. It happens on the streets of Dublin. 
happens on the streets of, of, of Limerick, happens on the streets of London, in, in the tiny communities you're dealing with, you know. Look at your border between North Ireland. It's, it's, there's all global forces. You know, like, you actually think about it, you know, Ireland, it's really fascinating. Northern Ireland, you know, and, and Ireland, it's, uh, you are, I think that conflict is being affected much more by global forces. You look at the Brexit, what, what a mess it's creating for you. So, so our children need to understand that the globalization is localization of global forces, is globalization of local forces. That's why we call it globalization. And what are the implications of that then for teachers? and for schools? Well, I think for teachers, this is an extreme big challenge. Because, you know, with teachers, uh, you know, we, we have some young teachers. We grew up to be aligned with a nation. By the way, Ireland is, is I think you're quite open uh, because you have, uh, you're small, you're, you have been a long history of, uh, of leaving the country, returning the country, different mixtures. But in many other places, you imagine you are in a, a country you've never left, you don't have contact with others, but you, you know it's happening. And also depend on different political systems. Political systems sometimes emphasize patriotism, that's nationalism, you know, it's isolationism, it's you know, religion-centric, all those kind of issues, you know. I think teachers have to really think about, yes, we have our own beliefs, our own faith, our own national identity, our own economic interest, but we need to understand our children and ourselves. Our well-being is dependent on the well-being of others. I don't think anyone can live alone to be well by themselves in this world. You know, your damage of the environment is the same environment I live in. You know, your, your withdrawing, think about it, it's something really from the, from the whole global supply chain is going to break a link for somebody else out, out somewhere, somewhere else. So, so that's, I think, teachers and schools have to rise above, but it's extremely hard to do. I, I, I recognize that, so we need to think about that. It's very hard. Do you think that the death of distance in relation to physical distance, but then this, the still existing distance between religions, cultures, languages, and politics, what, what needs to happen for, for those to be brought in line? Like, is it that we have to get rid of the, the, the religious distances and the cultural distances? Or can you still be identified with a particular culture and live in a world where there is no physical distance? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's basically, you, you can have your own culture. I think every culture identity is absolutely important. So is language identity. You know, you know that, that's why Gaelic is important. Keep, keep speaking, you know, that, that language is, you know, just, you know, I think everybody should have a, a local identity, but at the same time, we asserting our own identity, we should at the same time affirm other people's identity the same way. So that, that, that's, I think that, so when, when we are, when there's no physical distance, people still need to be, but that identity, can evolve, you know, you can have the Ayana identity, you can have your individual identity within the group. So that's what you, you know, this, this diversity. So a lot of times we're talking about really two sets of identities. One is called the individual, who you are. And another one is called the group identity, which group do you belong to? 
and we could belong to many different groups. You know, we, we are Irish, we're global citizens, we're Europeans. Uh, well, I don't know which uh, football club you, know, you, you root for, you know, which you know, sports teams, you know, which church you go to. So those, we belong to different identities and people can have that choice. So, so my, a part of my education philosophy has really a lot to do with, uh, you know, first of all, asserting yourself, but the understanding you're always interacting with others who have as strong belief in their own culture as you are. So what are the implications of that then for teaching a subject like history or geography or even languages? Uh, if, if, if you're trying to be aware all the time of your own identity, but then this broader connectedness. I have the good fortune to have known and have friends in many, many different countries. I've been to many, many countries and school systems, but that's also the I can say probably my own, to my own detriment. So when I write, when I write to any writing, in my mind, I have many audiences. I know, you know, some people who don't travel, when they write that, they, they imagine, you know, some authors in America, they imagine everybody's American. So they only have one group to write to, write for. I have to think about, does this work in this context? Does it work in that context? It's, uh, it's, it's you have to be, very aware, which also means good, you know, but also you have to have a balance. But so I, I think, you know, the, the, what is important here is, uh, is to understand others, you know, accept, you know, diversity. You know, that's why when you were first asking me the question about uh, how to build a consensus, I've really come to the point to say, you don't. And you respect others, you know, uniqueness. So you can, you know, be unique. And, but, you know, I emphasize a big point is that your uniqueness can only become valuable when it's valuable to others. You know, you, you realize your value by creating value for others. That's just, there's no get away from that. So, so I think the basic understanding globalization is to say, we respect, we even have to put up with each other. The understanding is that we can only live together independent, interdependently. I think that's a, that's a, a big challenge in our schools. You know, the biggest challenge of our schools is that schools teach children to be selfish, to be independent, not interdependent. You look at our schools, you know, we help each child, you complete your homework by yourself. Even we, when we even emphasize collaborative learning of, uh, or, you know, we, what do we do? We give each student their own grades. We give them own test scores and then they advance as an individual on their own test scores. We never evaluate how shown you've helped others. We evaluate how you, how you are doing. Schools teach that. We need to think about what, if I were to change the teaching pedagogy, I would say, okay, yes, John, you're good at music. I want to say, have you done something with the music to help others? So others, so what kind of value have you created? And then through that, you improve. But it's not just schools that do that. I mean, everywhere in life, if you want to apply for a job, it's you against the other applicants for that position in a, in a, in a limited, uh, where there are limited resources. So, I mean, are, are schools just replicating what is happening elsewhere in, in, in the way our society is structured? You're absolutely right. Well, there are several answers to that. This is uh, interesting. Is why is that uh, schools perpetuate that? Is that replicated? School per 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 perpetuate, but also schools can change that. You remember schools should be a, 
a social change format. School should not perpetuate. There are so many ugly things in society we shouldn't do. Injustice, you know, uh, uh, inequity, in all those things, you know, to violence, you know, there's uh, xenophobia, racism, we should reject. And schools should be the place to change that. So, so I always view schools as a way to help build a better society. I think that's where John Dewey's idea, schools should be intervening with the education, not reproducing those, those bad things, you know. Another way is to do, you know, think about is uh, uh, scarcity. You know, there are many more jobs than one job. If you only think of yourself trying to compete for that one job, still you're trying to create value for the other one, you know. No one, you know, good jobs we're looking for unique, your unique fit not you are the same as others. If you become exactly the same as others, you have to compete against each other. But if you create something new, you don't have to compete with each other. That's, that's very different. And also jobs are evolving. Jobs are created by people. Our student learners, that's another thing I've been arguing, our students are job creators. They're not job hunters. You, know, you create a new job for yourself. You're doing this podcast, you know. Well, who can apply, who can compete with you for your job, this one, right? Well, you've written a book called World Class Learners, Educating Creative and Entrepreneurial Students. So you've said why you think entrepreneurship is so important, but my question is, can entrepreneurship be taught? I think that, the, first of all, entrepreneurship in my book is really what I'm talking about today. It is a process, it is a mindset, it is a set of capacities to create value for others using your resources and uniqueness. So it's not like running a business or any of those things. So in my book, when we talk about entrepreneur learners, is that we want students to own their own learning. It's really student agencies, student learning. So whether entrepreneurship can be taught is debatable, but entrepreneurship can be enhanced. So like for example, let's say, you know, there's a lot of argument to say, you know, entrepreneurs made or something, for example, if you have no entrepreneur mindset, I can help you increase a little bit of that. But if you have that, I can make you to become great. Just, it's just you know, it's the same. So you can shift in that. I don't think you can really make everybody, the traditional entrepreneurs, it's more of an entrepreneur thinking and orientation. It's like people call growth mindset. It's, called, it's really a way to rethink, reorient ourselves. You also have a book called What Works May Hurt and you write about the side effects of education policies and practices. Could you give an example of a policy that was introduced in education that, that had unintended consequences that hurt? Oh, I mean, there's a lot of policies that have unintended consequences. You know, I, I think it's that they are, you know, they are in the U.S. We talk about no child left behind has, uh, you know, trying to hold uh, uh, schools, teachers accountable for raising test scores, you know, it uh, sounds like a good idea, you know, you hold teachers accountable, they teach better, but, you know, it has all these uh, problems, you know, with, you know, the unintended consequences, including narrowing the curriculum, cheating, you know, actually depriving students of a real education by teaching to the test. So there's a lot of, you know, policies. I think, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, like um, any policy would have some kind of unintended consequences. We just have to mitigate it. Speaking of, of which, you write a lot about the PISA tests and you talk about the PISA illusion and you talk about three illusions, the illusion of excellence, the illusion of science and the illusion of progress. Why are these illusions? 
Well, in the pizza, first of all, it, it's trying to create an uh, you know, illusion of excellence. You know, it's, uh, it's not real because when it's uh, used te PISA test scores to identify countries like East Asian systems as the best educational uh, or edu systems of excellence, they are not. They are excellent in some aspect, for example, maybe academic achievement, uh, maybe test scores, but they are not, you know, they're excellent in terms of student well-being, for example, student motivation, student value. So in the essence, that is an illusion, right? Is you have an illusion of excellence, which kind of, you know, true illusions have some truth, right? You know, but then the rest may not be true. The illusion of, uh, of science, it's, again, it's, it's, uh, PISA projects itself as a very scientific instrument, a measurement, great sampling, good instruments, the statistical modeling. But if you read my article, you discover a lot of criticism about uh, sampling issues, translation issues, you know, uh, and uh, also the issue of uh, uh, not applicable across different countries. You know, th that's cultural biases. The, the, the sense of progress is the same way. It's this, the illusion of, uh, you know, it gives a sense that it's, oh, some countries improved over the last three years, other countries improved. But if you examine that, that improvement may not even be probable, you know, and also that improvement is only in terms of test scores. Has it truly improved? We don't know. Do you think there's any place at all for international comparative tests of reading and mathematics and science? Or would you just get rid of them altogether? Do you think it's just too complex? To, to, to compare countries in that way? I, I don't think countries should be compared in, in that way. You know, it's really, you know, it, it's, they have different economies, they have different sizes, different education systems, different cultures, different educational outcomes. They have, there's so much difference in, in terms of that. I mean, I don't know, you know, and also, so, you know, the first question to say, why, why do you compare? You know, for example, are you really trying to compare that every country produces the same students so they can compete globally as a workforce? That's not true. You know, that, that's that, you know, there's no evidence to show that uh, the results are consistent and that student countries scored higher, let's say, you know, 20 years ago, Finland. Is Finland really uh, way kind of outpacing every other country in economic development? You know, you can just go through the same, the same thing, right? Hong Kong, you think Hong Kong was in progressing, you know, faster than other countries, Japan, uh, Korea, Singapore? You know, just think about that. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to compare that. If the outcome is not comparable, the rest, you know, falls flat. Any lesson you learn from that won't work. You grew up as a young boy in China and you experienced the Chinese education system. How did that experience of being educated in China shape your perspective on US education when you moved to the United States? Well, probably in, in a number of ways. One is that I actually have lived and experienced a very test-centric education system. That's everything is built around passing exams, pass, preparing for the exams, passing exams, preparing for the exams, right? In China. In China. So, so that really uh, uh, gave me a strong sense reaction to see how why exams do not capture everything about education. It's not only about Chinese education, it's only my personal experience in Chinese education. You know, I see the uh, a centralized, overly standardized curriculum has the capacity to de really to, uh, uh, to limit, to restrict opportunities for uh, creativity, curiosity, individual expression. So, so I see that, you know, when I see similar policies and actions being taken in the U.S. that might have that impact, it's... Uh, it changes that way, you know. So, so that that's what how it happens. I think it's a, 
it's uh, in many ways my own experience helped me to look at education in a different way. Given your interest in your interest in education and technology, what are the trends that you identify in technology and education that will be influential in the coming decades? A big part of technology is that it has created a new world we live in. Our children live in a digital world, you know, they, that's going to become even more important. Just look at the transformation of our society in the past uh, really two decades. Now you think about the coming uh, smart machines, the internet of everything, you know, will become more networked and uh, technology is going to enter our life a lot more. You're going to have uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, and now you have uh, robots, you have uh, robots to caring. I think we're going to have to deal with that. I think human beings will have to deal with uh, machines a lot. And, you know, we, we had uh, traditionally machines have replaced a lot of jobs. I'm very concerned about uh, artificial intelligence is going to replace a significant chunk of our traditional jobs. And that's education is preparing for. So our children not only have to learn to live with this technology, but also live uh, probably in a society when a lot of our jobs, our kids are preparing for today will disappear and what kind of jobs they have to be having, you know, what kind of things they will have been doing. So I think education's biggest challenge is not so much to use technology to help teach better, but to trying to foretell what kind of knowledge and skills and capacities and human qualities we need to nurture in the future. So if you were to answer that question about those capacities and skills and dispositions to nurture, what, what, what do you think they would be from where we're currently sitting? The best thing what I, I've been thinking about, I've been writing about, is called, I, I call the, the, the traditionally useless things, you know, what I call the traditional useless talents. It's, uh, if you think about it, what, what machines are in the future, and machines are identical, machines are based on large data, machines are average, machines, you know, don't have social emotional feelings, and machines are more normally mass-produced and processed in repetitive work and, and, and are good at identifying patterns. So I think human beings have no reason to compete with them for that because they do it cheaper, they do it without emotion, they don't get angry, don't get mad, and they do it actually with more reliability, they can go through more high risks. I think human beings have to avoid that. So if we want to compete with machines, the best thing we can do is not becoming one. So if we don't, want, if we don't become a machine, uh, what makes us human? I, number one, I really emphasize that they call it uniqueness. Everybody has to be truly unique and great in your own way. Understand yourself, you know, do not try to be like the other or beat the other. You know, when you have a unique combination of talents, virtues, abilities, you become very, uh, very um, powerful. So the second thing, understand the social. Human beings are going to do a lot of the social things. Even I think future jobs, you know, you know I, I, like uh, medicine, like uh, uh, even accounting, even STEM related, they're all going to be, have a heart. A medical doctor, the most valuable medical doctor is someone who understands you, who can, a machine can prescribe for the average patient, but your doctor can prescribe something for you. So the individual human touch, the social emotional machines don't have, uh, that is uh, the areas. And of course, you know, that one is called uh, creative. Creative being identifying problems worth solving. Not solving problems, but identifying problems. Machines can solve a problem. You identify, you can make it, do it. 
but they do not typically come up with a problem to, for you to solve. So identify problems to solve, that means creativity. And of course, entrepreneurial mindset that you take action. You don't wait for other people to act. You, you, you try to get away from being employed for a job. You try to create new possibilities. So you've mentioned unique, social, creative, and entrepreneurial. Their dispositions, if you like, do you still think people need to be able to read or they need to be able to use language or they need to be able to, you know, do mathematics? Like what, what about those more conventional subjects? How do they fit with these dispositions of being social, creative, entrepreneurial and unique? If you want to be great, unique, you want to be creative, entrepreneurial, you have to have a domain. And just, you know, empty, empty creativity doesn't lead to anything. Good creativity means you are novel and you are producing something meaningful and useful. And that has to re- have very deep knowledge in a certain domains. And so that's uh, all the traditional subjects would work somewhere, but they should be guided, should be driven by your ability to create and should be utilized to support your entrepreneurial thinking. And should each person have one domain or should they have a specialist domain or should they have several domains? Again, I think uh, that depends. We got 7 billion people. We probably need all of them. We need uh, some people, you know, have to be the generalist, to have a lot of knowledge, a lot of things. They become the connectors, right? We have people in some specific domains. It depends on, you know, who you are and uh, what you're born with, what your family background, what, where you are. I think, you know, I hate to prescribe one thing for all children. But if you're in a school, you need to think about, okay, do I, inter- do I give children tastes of lots of different domains and let them decide which ones they want to pursue? Or do I need to direct them in a, in a, you know, towards a domain of their choice without, without exposing them to, to a wide range of domains? Well, I think, you know, I would like to say what you said, and that's just a great suggestion. Schools should definitely expose children to as many possibilities as possible, especially for schools in poor communities because uh, wealthy people have better chance to expose children to more opportunities. I think schools should definitely do as much as possible to expose children to different uh, you know, opportunities, as wide as possible. Because uh, you know, until you see something, you try something, you don't know what you need. We're coming near the end, and I generally have a number of questions that I kind of finish up with. They're more general questions. And the first one is, what are schools for, or what is school for? There are different ways to answer it, right? One way to answer is that, uh, uh, what are schools for based on what we have? Because, you know, if you ask different people, uh, you know, they'll answer different questions. And also, you can ask what schools should be. Uh, for that's a different question. So I'm going to answer from my perspective what I think schools should be. You said what schools are. You know, schools should be probably I would say okay, as a place to equalize community resources. You know, there are families, you know, especially public schools, who need who don't have as much family resources as others. That's one thing. Schools should be uh, places where young children get together to learn how to socialize with support. It's not wild, wild west to learn to develop social emotional, to understand the member of a community. And schools are the places where children have a chance to interact with the adult world before they enter the adult world directly. 
Schools are the places that expands and create new possibilities where that doesn't exist at home and, and your local communities. And schools should be uh, the, a social institution that hopefully will cultivate a better uh, citizens for the future who actually uh, create and lead this future society into uh, more prosperity and more harmony. And this may be related, but what is your vision of an educated person? Well, educated person, I, I think, in the first of what really needs to be able to rationally judge. That is something I think is important. Uh, um, a well-educated person who would have a, a vision about himself and where society can be and who understands the limits and make good judgment. A well-educated person should uh, understand that, uh, be able to come up with uh, some beautiful questions they want to solve and uh, work on elegant solutions and always you know, kind of in uh, inquiry mode. And, and then of course, educated person understands the human interdependency uh, among all humanities. What drives an educated person? What gives them their, their get up and go? What I hope is the intrinsic motivation. An educated person will pursue something because it's valuable. And if it's valuable, as I said before, creates value for others and their external uh, extrinsic motivation will come, they will have to enjoy it. So they should pursue their passion. You know, I think uh, modern day, you know, kind of humanistic psychologists and uh, positive psychologists have been making argument about how do you live a happy life and happy, pursuit of happiness will drive you, but how do you pursue that matters. You know, that is, has to do with your self-determination, sense of control, sense of a relationship, self-actualization. So there's internal human drive that will make you try to learn more and educate more. Was there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? I've had many teachers that always had great impact on me. You know, uh, in, I, I, in my little village, we had, uh, you know, for the first two years, we had one teacher. The last three years, had another teacher, just one teacher, one room, schoolhouse with multiple kids. And uh, without them, I would not be able to enter education. I think uh, they were the, you know, the, the, the teacher was the principal, was the teacher of all subjects. It was just... Uh, uh, just beautiful, creating a new word for me, you know, a, a, a word I can imagine beyond my village. So, and then when you go to middle school, I think every step on the way, I have all those teachers who open my eyes, my doors, without really passing judgment of them. And if you go back to that elementary school or primary school, how many children were in the class with you? Uh, it depends, you know, it depends on where, which season. If it's uh, harvest season, you may not get as many. You know, planting season, it's, uh, you know, the class were like 40, 60. I don't really remember because we have different age groups. We hang out, you know, we, we, you know t together. It's, it's one big classroom. So, so it's, uh, and then we move to another classroom. It's kids from about six different villages coming together, you know, on a daily basis. Have you a favorite book or writer or blog about education? There are so many, I hate to nominate anyone in particular. You know, I, I think there are people, you bring, uh, people bring different uh, um, ideas. You know, of course, you know, I would, you know, uh, one of my, you know, uh, people I really admire is uh, in the US, he's really influenced me a lot, is uh, David Berliner. Many, many people may or may not know him. He, he really 
is one book was really powerful called The Manufactured Crisis in the 1990s. He was debunking the myth behind the so-called American education is getting worse based on test scores. He was the one who gave me a, a new way of thinking. You know, another one is really, uh, I think, uh, Diane Ravitch. You know, she has uh, done a very active blog and her fierce defense of the public education helped me broaden my thinking about what the, the, you know, the broader purpose of education, uh, of schooling, of schools beyond simply teaching literacy and numeracy. David Berliner is actually, a, he was a previous guest on the program. We had him. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And finally, you, you seem to know a bit about Ireland and uh, you, um, you, you've mentioned Ireland. So what, what would your final word for Irish teachers and Irish educators be before we finish up? Well, I've been in Ireland, uh, fortunately, multiple times. I, at one time, I think I was uh, uh, able to speak at the primary school principals conference in Dublin. And uh, I co-authored with the, the Irish professor, Paul Conway. I, I visited Cork multiple times. I also think uh, uh, Anuni out of your city college in education. And I have, uh, so I, have, I feel like I've, uh, I'm quite connected with Ireland in some way. And, uh, but... So, the, you know, the final words I would say, you know, every country, everybody, every individual has a chance to change what we're not happy about. Uh, it's hard, you know, but let's change. As educators, we have to think about ourselves, but also think about our retirement. That's our children. If we're living a better life in the future, we better help our children to create a better world for us. If I want to live a better life in the future, I need to help our children create a better world for us. Isn't that such a strong incentive for every teacher to be the best they can be? They were the words of Professor Yang Zhao from the University of Kansas, bringing this week's episode to a close. Remember, you can listen back to this week's podcast and hundreds of previous episodes by going to seandelaney.com slash podcasts. You can write to me by emailing insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available from all good libraries and online bookstores. Follow me on Twitter at Inside Ed. Until next week, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.